This is Joel Blackstock with the Taproot Therapy Collective Podcast. Unfortunately, Alice is not able to be with us today, but we have our guest, uh, Sandra Del Castillo. And uh, correct me if that if I'm saying that wrong or incorrectly. Is that right? No, you did. That's great. Del Castillo. Perfect. Nice. And I'm surprised and delighted. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, uh, she has a podcast that I like, which is how I found her, which is um, the Blue Medicine Journal, which... We're working on getting in more podcast libraries right now. Um, it's just in a couple, but if you Google it, you'll find it. And uh, she is a specialist in um, depth psychology and Mesoamerican uh, mythology as, you know, from an archetypal perspective. So I'm sure that this conversation is going to be really interesting. I'm so happy that you're here with us. And thank you so much for, for being here. Um, so I, you got anything before we get started? You want to give an introduction of, of yourself or, you know, have any, any questions uh, about where this should go? Thank you, Joel. First of all, thanks for finding me and 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 list, tuning into my podcast, Blue Medicine Journal, a Jungian podcast. I um, my background is uh, from Pacifica Graduate Institute. I got my um, master's and PhD there, and I what I did it uh, my dissertation on the Mexican Day of the Dead from a Jungian perspective. So, in that process, I was able to delve really deeply into the Mesoamerican which became a passion and, and began just leading me through the entire process. So, and, and like I said, or like you said, it's through a Jungian lens. So it's, it's, a, it's not that I have this vast amount of knowledge and expertise in what is the Mesoamerican, but rather what is the Mesoamerican through a Jungian lens. And that to me is what makes it key, you know, and allows me to show its relevance today as we... <laughs> you know, find ourselves in this Kairos moment, this between worlds moment or, you know, sixth grade extinction. The, the liminal space, you know, kind of like the day of the dead, you know, this overlapping of two worlds. But so when you, when you say, you know, archetypal, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you mean that um, you know, you're, you're looking more at the kind of, you know, projective and, you know, timeless elements of the psyche in the mythology, but you're saying you're not quite like a, an anthropologist or an archaeologist or a historian on you know the whole history of Mesoamerican stuff. So when you when you're coming at that, um, you know, to to look at it, I mean, do you use mainly kind of Aztec or the the similarities between the Aztec and the Maya, like the you know the heroic twins, or do you go back to the the Olmecs and the Toltecs? You know, how how far? What is your area of interest outside of the um, the Day of the Dead? I, I do tend to uh, focus on the Mayan and the Aztec because they're the most accessible. My, I, although I am very interested in the Olmec as well and the Toltec, of course, you know, that's where we find um, the roots of, of, of Quetzalcoatl, right? Uh, who was both a mythic uh, figure, uh, one of the creator gods and also uh, the historic uh, god-man. So there's two different figures of Quetzalcoatl, but coming from the Toltec culture. My, I also have interest in the Purépecha, which is my ancestral heritage. Mm. So that's from the state of Michoacán on my father's side. My father was 100% Purépecha. So when I had the privilege of living in, in Michoacán for six years, I was able to delve into the, the myth and the ritual and the um, indigenous medicine and indigenous ritual in that area the, and be able to participate in um 
ceremonies at at the ritual sites and it was to me it was one of the most learning experiences i've ever had and of course that region is renowned for its mexican day of the dead which mm. helped inspire my dissertation although death would have never been my first uh conscious choice it certainly <laughs> became the unconscious <laughs> choice oh well, pacific is a good place for that so I, I guess my first question is Leg legends of the hidden temple is it historically accurate or not well, I can't. show from the '90s. I, I don't know. That's a good question. I, 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 I it, it's I'm not. not it's a joke. It, it's a. It was a game show where they would have kids. They had <laughs> a what is it? A giant talking stone head called Olmec was like the announcer, and then the kids would have to like run and get a prize. I don't. It was like on TV in like '94. Oh my god, that's hilarious! I have no idea. I was living in Mexico at the time. Yeah. <laughs> You're hanging out with the real Olmec head, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, when I was living in in este in Veracruz, because I lived in, I got to live in four different states in Mexico, which was a, a, just an amazing experience for over a period of fifteen years. And one of the places I lived was in the state of Veracruz, in the capital, Jalapa where one of the largest anthropological or archaeological museums second to the one in Mexico City is. And that's where the enormous Olmec heads are. Mm -hmm. And I actually get to perform a visual theater piece in that um, in that uh, phenomenal museum. And it is it is an experience of the numinous when you're around the Olmec mm -hmm. heads. <laughs> to, to, well, and, and the the Olmec that that so that is an Olmec site, right? Is where that museum is. Whereas the one in Mexico City is in Tenochtitlan is the is the Aztec temple. Yeah, but absolutely. It, what's uh -huh. interesting to me about the archaeology there is like the 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 Olmecs and the Toltecs, like the Aztecs knew about those empires, and they kind of their kings would link their ancestry to those kings. You know, probably uh, it probably was not real, but you know they would pretend. You know, like we pretend. Well, I'm and somehow you know affiliated with this ancestral line. But they they had those artifacts around, you know, so they were digging up, you know, those things for inspiration. I mean, you found where there's pieces of jade and things that have been repurposed. Not jade. What am I thinking of? It's the blue stone. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, you found places where they had dug things up from the Olmecs and then repurposed it and brought it into the other things. So you, can you say anything about the difference in those cultures? I guess we don't we don't know a ton outside of archaeological findings about Olmec mythology, whereas Aztec, you know, the, the Spanish do write some of it down, even if it's not. Well, what we know is that the, the Olmec is, it was considered in, 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 in Latin America or Mesoamerica, like the first. Well, and and I, I, so I think arising around 1200 BCE. And um, one of the things that Joseph Campbell says in, um, his book the mythic image he talks about these ancient cultures that were had a, a social and political order that was celestially based yeah and it began this is archetypal in nature and it began as he in his findings in around the fourth century bce and with the um in mesopotamia with the ziggurats Mm -hmm. And for a, a certain class of, of, of priesthood that were priests and kings, astronomers, astrologers, that after careful observation of the planets, they were able to derive this uh, celestially based social and political order. And religious, you know, the, the entire calendar was based around what they found. Mm -hmm. Now, this model, which... Campbell called the most culturally far-reaching in human history mm -hmm. and significant 
it, I mean, you can see its archetypal nature in that it sprung up, you know, afterwards in Crete, Egypt, India, China, Greece, mm -hmm. you know, throughout the world without the use of the internet, you know, yeah. I mean, there, there's where you see the archetypal nature. It always spirals back around and it's, you know, it sprouts forth. And so this sprouted forth in 1200 BCE in Mesoamerica and it just sort of spread. Mm -hmm. And so this is the kind of thing that I look for in, in whether it's with the Aztecs or, or, or the Mayas or the Toltecs. This kind of uh, correlation to me, I think, is the most profound um, and I find the most relevant because these were aligned these were aligned with the cosmos so mm -hmm. we saw the 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 world order or the you know in alignment with the cosmos that we've effectively been cut off from since the cartesian mm -hmm. an important part of, of human evolution you know to sort of distinguish us from the um the participation mystique you know and and, and find ourselves you know as individuals and yet at the same time we lost our well, the world soul, right? The anima mundi. We lost connection with that. And and so as we, to me, my search back is to glean this archetypal wisdom uh, that was lost through the conquest. And I consider the real gold. And at this, you know, crucial moment in time, something that we need to learn from, something that we need to, to uh, readapt. I think it was like in, in the 1990s, um, the former Czech president, Václav Havel, was giving a keynote uh, speech to the students at Stanford. And he talked about this. He talked about the, 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 um, the importance you know, of, of a world democracy formed from the uh, celestially based, uh, let's say, um, unity once again. That's the only way that we would ever have it. I think you know, as as humanity finds ourselves in this, uh, you know, um, Kairos moment, what Jung called the Kairos moment. I think that it, you know, and and what, let me explain a little bit about that in terms of uh, the Kairos, a Greek word meaning opportune moment, right? Mm -hmm. And and back in the 1960s, Jung, I think, was probably in his 80s by that point, but he sensed this pervasive mood of of um destruction and renewal that was haunting the um you know the humanity western mind anyway and he looking forward he he felt that it was an ideal time for what he called a metamorphosis of the gods now that's a mythopoetic way of saying you know for a changing of worldview Mm -hmm. right the, of the fundamental principles and symbols that define our era and so as the world around us crashes and burns um so we can gather from these ancient archetypal wisdoms that have you know ruled and and, and formed order in ancient civilizations and puts us once again attuned to the world soul to the ensouled cosmos which we've been cut off from, you know, we've been disenchanted. So it, it's a, I think that's part of my work is a, is a form of re-enchantment, reclaiming in the now what we've lost. But, you know, so Jung called in, in the Red Book, he said, giving birth to the ancient in a new time is the task. Mm -hmm. that, that's the salvation. And um, 
it's like giving birth to a new world. And that's, you know, that's in essence, I think what depth psychologists are looking for now. I mean, your program, your, the, the uh, podcast that you, you run, you know, you're looking for that. You're, you're talking about um, the, to, to the detail of what does architecture look like? Yeah. And, and what is, to me, that's one of the things that I also grasp from Mesoamerica. Well, I, I mean, I think depth psychology informs all aspects of, of human existence because, you know, there's these, just like you're taking, what are you doing in depth psychology? You have a patient, you, they're, you know, usually older by the time they make it into Jungian analysis <laughs> and you're starting to say, okay, well, here are the patterns in your life. You kind of have to be alive a little while before we see those patterns. And, and then, then they're like, well, what do I do with those? And you're like, well, I don't know. I'm not a cognitive therapist. You just notice them and then you can't unnotice them. You know, we can't undo what we just did. And then they're like, well, I, I tried this and I tried that and it doesn't work and I can't change them. Well, I'm angry. I'll just put it down. Oh, well, no, they're still there. And then somebody continues to work through these things until there's able to kind of be a breaking and restructuring. Um, you know, but people work the same way. You know, we, we have these patterns in civilization that are bigger than one life or one city or one nation or one millennium, you know, that, that go back and which is you're, you're talking about there at the beginning of um, most mythological, uh, the fusion of the kind of religious and logical systems is science and religion, which weren't seen as separate entities back then, you know, it was just knowledge, was people projecting on the stars. They see these patterns, the patterns continue to happen. Well, why are they there? You know, what is the explanation for that? And then we start to have the central myth, you know, there's China, Aztecs, everyone has it. I don't know if it's apocryphal, um, but I've heard a story that there was like a, a missionary that like went to the Aztecs and thought, oh, these primitive people don't know anything about, um, you know, uh, astronomy. But uh, really, they had a calendar that was so accurate, it didn't even need a leap, leap year. It was better than the, uh, it was better than the European calendar. And so he told them, oh, well, you need to convert to Christianity because there's going to be an eclipse. I can project predict it because my god told me and they're like we know there's gonna be an eclipse too dude and so they just killed him you know, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no i have no idea i know yeah. i said that story but it's a good one i have no idea um, the, yeah i mean the fact that any i mean what what do we know about our neighbors to the south really other than what's been uh taught you know in our history books which is a general um uh, let's say emphasis on their shadow. We know really nothing about. Uh, well, it's such a through a glass darkly thing because the the Spaniards are writing down what Aztecs <laughs> believed in order to say that it's bad. So they're sort of <laughs> embellishing the worst parts, but you can maybe see a grain of truth through it. Another one. I, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but have you have you read James Matthews' book, the um, Aztec philosophy? No, it, I haven't. Aztec metaphysics. He's you know he's an archaeologist, so he's coming at it from but he says basically that the you know all of the um <clears throat> the worldview we are thinking of it from kind of a eurocentric perspective as gods or whatever like it's a greek pantheon but that wasn't really it it was this interconnected energy that they sort of saw energy as being just this pervasive thing that was sort of at tension with itself sometimes you have the 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 twins that are opposites that have to you know get along to create the world and that that everything is connected you know when you look at the temple there's like the snakes are all, you know, wrapped around whatever, but it's it's not really a separate figures like the Parthenon. And so they really saw these things as just kind of being inevitable expressions of, of, of um, you know, uh, just kind of universal principles. And when the Spanish are like, 
you know, go ahead and break your gods, you know, smash these things. They're just kind of confused. And they're like, well, we can break these rocks if you want, but the gods are dead. Like they, the, the moon goddess has already been uh, dismembered. You know, like these, these things are, are just part of, uh, part of the way that the universe works. And there was this confusion, you know, whereas the Spanish saw, you know, a lot of the uh, architecture and the, and, and the, as like idols in a way that, you know, they, they couldn't understand, you know, the, the Aztecs saw that more as, um, just a representation of their worldview, you know, which is harder to break. <laughs> well, I mean, because it's archetypal in nature, you know, mm. that's the point. I mean, one of the things that, um, for instance, James Hillman said is that he wasn't advocating for, uh, you know, the Greek religion to be reborn, but rather a psychological faith in you know, the what we recognize as these gods, the ancient gods, mm -hmm. whether they're Greek or Aztec or Mayan or Olmec, Toltec, as archetypal principles, qualities mm -hmm. and styles of consciousness, potentials within, you know, that manifest secondarily. I mean, hence mm -hmm. these, you know, they're, they're images on the ancient temples and in the mythologies and and in our dreams right yeah i mean they're there to compensate and correct in a meaningful way the otherwise limited um uh, ego consciousness which can be oppressive because because it, it is so limited mm -hmm. i mean so to to repress that kind of world view it was going like Jung said. It was it. It would the gods manifest now in disease, right? Mm. And diseases, you know. And and I feel the things that we don't understand and don't have power over. You know, we've we've filled in the blank edges of the map so much that the only things that we feel like we can't explain with a test tube or you know particle <laughs> physics or something are the things that are killing us that we can't stop. <laughs> so that the, that was the extent of our religion. Which I mean, the I think you yeah. see that archetypal energy coming out with something like COVID. Where, you know, some of the political reactions are almost like schizophrenia, you know, we just this bursting of unconscious, you know, archetypes because people don't understand what's happening. And and because we we historically have denied the shadow, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, what to me, I remember, I remember when COVID broke out, like, like all of us do, but I remember that that was on the heels of how many millions of animals that had died in the Australian bushfires. Yeah. To me, I wondered, I thought, I was chilled, I mean, horrified. And I thought, what what kind of repercussion are we going to experience as a result of that, you know? And well, I mean, of course, I mean, because a plague, you know, why wouldn't we, you know, we act as if we're not connected. That's where that limited, you know, that's where our science has been so reductive. And, and it's time for like a leap because we've learned so much from our sciences. Now we have to connect them. Now we have to, you know, join the ancient with with the new so that we, we don't really successfully uh, destroy ourselves so that maybe humanity can make it through this collective rite of passage, you know, as, as Richard Tarnas calls it. And and there's, to me, there's really no other way to look at it. You know, in a, in a, any rite of passage, there is a death and and um, a hope of a rebirth. Mm -hmm. That rebirth isn't guaranteed. That's what makes it real, right? And we can't really have one foot in the next thing before we let go of the old thing. You know, you kind of have to to watch it go away, and 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 maybe there isn't. Well, you know. yes and no, Joel. Because one of the things that 
I think this is where imagination comes in. One of the things that the um, Buddhist scholar, now in her 90s, activist, uh, Joanna Macy says is that we cannot give birth to what we have not first imagined in our hearts, cherished mm -hmm. in our hearts. That's the word. That's more of an intuition, you know, than an intellectual ego-based knowledge. It's it's more, yeah, and it has more to do with, yeah, I'm feeling and imagination. Now, remember mm. that Einstein said imagination was was more important than knowledge. Um, the uh, 14th century um, alchemist Martin Rulin said that imagination is the star in man, the celestial star in man. Uh, Paracelsus called it the sun in man. And um, French philosopher and Islamic scholar Henri Corbin said that the heart is the seat of the imagination that, and the heart speaks in images. And so for us to be able to imagine first what it is, that's, I think that's the biggest challenge of all in a disenchanted world. You know, it's not, as the, um, Corbin talked about the, the mundus imaginalis, right? The, the imaginal world, imaginal, not imaginary. So, and he he used he coined the term imaginal to distinguish between imaginal and imaginary, which we consider mm -hmm. more like fantasy. Imaginal, escapism. yes, escapism. Well put. So, so the imagination to lead forth with the imagination that arises from the heart—that's different, and mm -hmm. it's and, and it's not easy. I mean, and it's no. best done in groups. It's best and done it's, in it's, groups. It's harder. It, well, and there's some sort of. Uh... Uh, you know, peer review of the soul that happens in a group. <laughs> um, because, you know, one of the things I tell patients a lot is that your trauma and your intuition come from the same part of the brain. So until you deal with the, the trauma, how do you know what it is that you're really feeling and acting on? It, it feels like this kind of unconscious compulsion, you know, like, uh, you know, does this guy have four stars on Google and everybody says he's he's a good guy, but something, I'm just getting a feeling that this is not right. Or am I afraid of men in red sweaters? Like, you don't know. And so while there's so much pain, um, you know, I think one of the problems with the imaginary is that we project kind of our shadow into it. Whereas when you're really in the experience of the imaginal, it's kind of beneath that. Um, it's kind I, of what? It's kind of beneath. It's beneath that. Oh, it's I deeper. see. Yeah. It's and, and, and I think that's you're talking about Hellman, but I think that's what Hellman was looking for. Part of his frustration with the institutes when he leaves is he was tired of analysis. He wanted direct experience. And I think yeah. he wanted more direct experience than he thought that a monotheistic faith like you know Judaism that he was coming from or Christianity could. Uh, uh, could but that's precisely was his point: was that we have a polytheistic psyche. That was one of the mm -hmm. that his his that was his thing. It wasn't mm -hmm. uh, you know a, a, a reversion or a desire to return to that to the to the Greek religion, but to to, to recognition of a polytheistic psyche. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, Jung said he he said when the earth was desychized, right? Mm -hmm. So, so desold, in other words, that what we did, we imagined that somehow we were so sophisticated now, we were way beyond these ancient religions that imagined that a rock had life or that it could speak or anything mm -hmm. that you know and yet so what we did was project our demons and 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 our shadows and our darknesses onto other people. Yeah. Because they were the only thing left alive. There was no conversation with the world. And you have your conversation through the world interpersonally. That's dangerous. Um, that's right. it. When, when we consider, and when we consider the atrocities committed by the, the Inquisition mm -hmm. that expanded from Europe to the Americas, you know, the, the worst 
torture devices in human history were created in the name of Christ. It, it's it's mm -hmm. phenomenal. The misogynist um, you know, priesthood that were afraid of their own sexuality and women. And so they were able to project the evil outwards and create the most hideous torture devices and become purged in that process. Mm -hmm. I mean, the level of perversion and, and, and brutality is 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 mind-boggling and yet that is what we we've done to anything and and the ancient peoples whenever the 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 ensouled world spoke to them again they mm -hmm. were so traumatized by the fear imposed upon them that they then would project it outwardly as shadow as evil Mm -hmm. Oh, no, we, we can't listen to that. You know, astrology became evil. Um, anything that was ensouled other than the Trinity and human beings, that was considered evil. I mean, that's incredibly reductionist. I mean, and, and it would be no wonder that Hillman or anybody would at a certain point go, yeah, this isn't working. You know, the monotheism, that's not how the psyche is structured. We are polytheistically structured. So parts-based, there's a lot of parts of us, and when you try and make it a monolith, um, it doesn't work as well. I mean, just interpersonally, I mean, I think one of the reasons why depth psychology is a little bit more uh, effective than and doing, you know, cognitive or boundaries-based counseling, starting there instead of with the emotional, you start with the intellectual, is, you know, you when you do, um, when you understand the parts of yourself, you understand the parts of other people. So at Thanksgiving, I, I don't have to decide between, you know, denying who granddad really is and saying, well, he's the best guy ever or canceling him and causing a big scene. I can kind of be like, you know, this is the unrealized potential of this person who I love. And it's very sad. It's a tragedy. They don't actualize that. Also, these are the parts of him that I like. And, and, and when people are less monolithic, just in, individually, we're a little bit easier to be around. And when society and religion is a little bit less monolithic, we uh, are usually a little bit general, uh, you know, uh, we're gentler and there are less, you know, iron maidens that we're and maidens. Well put, and 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 maybe even less wars, you know. Yeah. yeah. So there's 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 so much to consider. You well, know, I think it's vulnerability. If you need like where where Christianity in, in its worst phases, um, like you're talking about, uh, is where it needs to be perfect. And if it needs to be perfect, then everything else is projected outside. Um, and so, like, if if I am. Um, if I'm, if I'm raised to hate vulnerability, you know, imperfection, and I have to disown my own and repress it, then I'm going to project it and attack it. So what happens there is anybody who you see who is hurting, well, that is good because all, I'm always going to side with the abuser in every case. Um, and anytime anyone's hurting somebody, I'm on the side of the person who's hurt doing the hurting and the person who is getting hurt is bad. And then, you know, whatever your theology or politics or mythology is, it's secondary to that. That's the emotional reaction is first, you know, that archetypal reaction. And then second, you're like, oh, well, the free market did it or you know, well, they aren't Christian. You, you invent a reason later, you know, but the need when you feel like you are perfect um, and you're repressing your vulnerability is to project that vulnerability and attack it externally. That that whole idea of perfection is it, isn't it? I mean, I think that's really key. And it's so different, let's say, than the aim of depth psychology or the Jungian depth psychology, because, I mean, the where the aim isn't perfection but wholeness you know we are light and dark we are conscious and unconscious you know the ancient gods of old were creative and destructive that's just an image of wholeness and you know you the, don't really the, want to look in the ark of the covenant you know it's, it's too much for one person to hold you know? 
well, archetypal. Uh, what happens when you when you view the god? I mean, the, the, there's you know an insanity, right? A madness mm -hmm. or or death that ensues, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so so that whole that whole notion again of, of perfection, I think, has really stilted the culture in in such a sort of a brutal and one sided way. I mean, I, I grew up Catholic and dang you know that that kind of stuff stays with you uh, you know and the, i remember that that striving for, for, for perfection and i think no 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 we're human you know we are we are light and dark we are you know vulnerable and strong you know well, and where catholicism seems to have gotten more entrenched and stabilized is where the people usually in south america people have more of a relationship with individual saints um, you well know, that's you have it. more of a container for the divine Whereas the places where it becomes the Spanish Inquisition tend to burn out, um, you know, the saints are all able to hold an aspect of divinity. And I feel, I feel that, I mean, innately, when you're having lived in, in, in inland America for, for 15 years, the saints days in Mexico are celebrated year round. I mean, mm -hmm. you can see that there is the, there's the polytheistic psyche. Mm -hmm. and, and while they're very, you know, Catholic, well, it's still very Christian. Yeah. Uh, and there's still the great fear of the devil. It's, it's so, when I lived in Michoacan, well, I mean, it's really throughout Mexico, it's particularly in the rural areas. These ancient biblical stories are enacted, you know, mm -hmm. where I was, I lived right outside of a mass making village. And oh my God, I mean, it's like they would be incredible, um, you know, Saint, uh, um, Saint George fighting the dragons, or you know the 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 devils fighting Mark Michael the Archangel. I mean, but in masks and fabulous. And, and as the psyche needs it, they create yes. new saints that the Catholic Church may not even approve of, like death mm -hmm. as a saint in a lot of regions of Mexico, touched right. by cartels and drug violence. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yes, I mean, indeed. They, like oh, the church left one out. We need to. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, um, it, oh, so I you know I wanted to go back to the idea of architecture. Mm -hmm. You know, in um, David Carrasco, who is a, a Mesoamerican scholar and a, um, academic professor in both the Harvard Divinity School and anthropology at Harvard, it uh, he's he's written a lot on on Mesoamerica and the ancient religions, and um, he also edited um, Bernal Diaz del Castillo's um, History of New Spain. And Bernal Diaz del Castillo, for the readers who don't know, so he was one of the, in the 15th century, he was one of the chroniclers, Spanish chroniclers, as well as a soldier, right? So obviously everything is written for the king. They're trying to sell their, you know, their 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 wars and whatever they're doing. And um, when, what, what he, what um, Carrasco went back and did is he looked at the map, the ancient map of Tenochtitlan, which is the capital of, of uh, the Aztec capital, right? And what he noted was that it was created in, it, you know, it was divided. There was the center and the four cardinal points. That's how the entire city was based. Now the Mayans also, their, their architecture, their pyramids, their city-states, like the Aztecs were placed according to the cosmos, according to the stars in alignment with, right? And this, the four cardinal points and the center was considered the sacred geometry that united the 13 celestial realms and the uh, nine underworld realms with the middle world, which was us, the earth, right? And that, it, 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 it um, as a sacred geometry, 
it allowed humans to the, the gods to interpenetrate the earth and all living beings at all times and it, it allowed the humans to become sort of immersed in a mythical time yeah in which I, they I think that's what Maffey is talking about when he's, he's talking about the energy of teot in his book Oh, okay. You're always channeling this energy that's moving back and forth between worlds that looks very similar to like a metaphysics or so, to, to like a, a, a particle physics or something that we would have now. You know, so, this sort of understood identity and divinity as a, a particle and a wave. Um, I need, I need to, I need to. What's the name of that book again? It's called Aztec Philosophy, but Aztec okay. Metaphysics might have been a better. All right, name. great. So, so <laughs> um, one of the things that Carrasco mentions is one of the Aztec wise men once commented that if the if Tenochtitlan were to fall, if the capital were to fall, the sky would collapse. Mm -hmm. Now, if we interchange the word sky with consciousness, we could say that it did collapse. Con mm -hmm. The consciousness of humanity did collapse, you know, and, and we fell into kind of a darkness the last 500 years where we imagined mm -hmm. ourselves as, as you, know, you know, orphans you know, floating around in the universe, right? Uh, skin encapsulated egos, which of course served industrial revolution and, and, and the corporate fantasy as Hillman called it. I mean, so, mm -hmm. so, you know, it, it's, it served a purpose, uh, you know, and, and marched us, you know, right to, to this point in history where we're, we're brought to our knees, you know, and yet it, it continues, you know, convulsing and, and, you know, manically trying to get the last, you know, vestiges of whatever needs to be short-sighted by its nature. It can't be concerned with timeless things because that is because, obviously a longer term. And because it goes against industrial growth. <laughs> you know yep. progress what we call progress in other Mine words go up. <laughs> so to me that idea of of creating and I, I listened to that last podcast of yours which i thought was fascinating but to if, if we're considering how you know how to to rebuild you know how to reimagine the earth and and and, and recreate mm -hmm. it you know how do we how what does it look like you know how how do we how do we realign ourselves with the stars in in cities and in, in, in metropoli i mean to me i always i used to have a program uh uh one of my uh projects called imagine you know imagining a new world into being because it, it's like peace you know if you look up peace in in, in any dictionary you'll say that it's the absence of war and if that's the case then it's not likely we'll ever have it you know, because if we can't imagine it, if we don't know what it looks like, what it feels like, then, well, you know, it, again, it's not likely we'll ever have it. What does it look like? What is a new, what is a, a city, what, what is a city that's aligned with the cosmos look like? How you can't do, even I, see the stars in a city. It's too bright. It. You've got to that's go it. out. I live in LA. That's, yeah. I mean, and, I, and, and there's, there's a, for me, as someone that has a love affair with the stars, I feel that absence. You know, well, the I, Aztecs solution, I think, was the, the calendar of festivals. I mean, all, those festivals like are, are commemorating um, celestial events and dates. Um, there it is. There's that alignment with the cosmos. That's the point. And that's to me is like as we reimagine, we have to reconsider how how cities are, are, are built. You yeah. know, that that Temino space. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, because where are applauses? Even go back to Greek um, structure, but they had the hearths, Hestia, there were hearths. You know, every place had, had their plazas with their central hearth where storytelling mm -hmm. was happening, you know, where the bar. But you still have the ripples of that. Like now, if you're having an interior designer come to your house and you drag your couch in front of your fireplace, you know, something in us says that's not right. But we're not sitting there going like, oh, the Roman Penates, the hearth fires, the ancestors, and we must keep it burning at all times or else it does not like that isn't something that we intellectually are doing anymore. Yet there is still this design language of do not put something in front of your fireplace because it is it has to be able to radiate out, you know, even if it's something that is not going to be affected by heat or something, you're designing around that as a central point, you know, the, the caveman television or whatever goes back to the you know greek hestia or the roman panates you know the, the ancestral altars that are burning all the time there you go there you go so i mean so that's it that how do we incorporate that wisdom into let's say interior design exterior design architecture how do we yeah. how do we begin to you know to to create those kind of um well again Directions connections with the cosmos that we've been cut off from you know how do we re-enchant our our earth how do we, we want pulled to psyche out of it and just into us and where the world is dead and we're alive and i don't know if you've ever um he, he's probably had an, a, a pretty net negative effect on the world but one of the guys who does like he basically kind of did the big last wave of american advertising it's like a french clinical psychologist but he, he figured out how to sell these products to americans and Sargento cheese was like really big in France. And so they, they played the ads here and um, you know, the, the, the cheese was like, um, it may be interesting to have him on the podcast if he'd return an email, but you know, it was like hands touching it and warm light and people blowing the dust off the cheese and the bacterial, you know, crust and all this. And they played it in America. Nobody wanted it. And they went to him and he was like, no, in America, it's dead. You want a relationship with the cheese that it's part of you in the community. They want it in a body bag. And he invented a zippable bag that all cheese has now. <laughs> Sargento was the first company to do that. And it was its design because he said, in America, nothing is alive. Everything is dead. You just want to be able to put the cheese in a body bag was the line. You know, and he, he also did the first ad for the for the first Hummer. But there's, you know, it's a big scary car going through the town and it's, you know, going over rocks in the city and it goes through the city and it looks real intimidating and the window rolls down and there's a teeny tiny blonde girl in it. And he said, you know, the American man, he knows he's tiny and feminine and weak, but he needs a big car to protect, you know, his, I mean, and, and but like, you know, you can't say what the guy said because you don't want that associated with the brand. But, you know, he's he wrote all these ads, you know, you know seeing those things. That brings me back to uh, one of the things that Jung said about um, the world of advertising and media. You know, he 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 likened likened them to uh, the dark magicians of the Renaissance. It's a you myth. know, but it's not a good myth. It's, it's well, that's it. Magic. It, it, it. It's magic that serves the corporate agenda and creates. It has spun the worldview that we are living. It's hijacking you know? the religious impulse. You know, there it is. There you, know, it is. you don't have to be an artist. You just, if you buy an Apple computer, you are an artist. You don't have to have a new way of life. If you walk into a Starbucks, you just get to. You know. it's, it's, it's well put. Hijacking, say that again. Hijacking. Hijacking the religious impulse. I mean, one that. of the things I use with patients a lot is that, you know, we all have this transcendent function. And if you think you're an enlightened atheist or the existential whatever, you know, and we're not saying you have to belong to organized religion or, or believe, you know, in a metaphysical, you know, supernatural anything but if you're not aware where religion is operating in your life 
then it's going to be operating unconsciously. And that's where you start to project the religious impulse onto products or onto what I can buy at Best Buy or onto like an economic system. It's like, say what you want about free market or whatever, but it's not a religion, man. Like this, this is well, <laughs> but again, I mean, it, it, there it is. There we see the, that, um, that we see the, the, you know, the dark wizards, right? The dark, yeah. the dark magicians of the Renaissance at work, you know, because mm -hmm. they know what they're doing. They, they understand it. They get it. I mean, the fact that this French advertiser was actually a psychologist, that's the whole point, yeah. you know, and, and one of the things about the Jungian and archetypal depth psychology is what they did was they, they joined again, psyche with logos psychology, mm -hmm. you know, they, they created that. I mean, I mean, of course, let's say the pioneer Freud did too, but, I mean, you just took it further, right? I Psyche mean, and logic. I mean, that's a fight in psychology that goes back forever that's still not solved. You know, co cognitive therapists, you know, post-80s mainstream therapy wants it to be CBT. You're only what you do. You're only behavior. If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, count it, it's not real. And then, you know, there's kind of the the, the more navel-gazing, mystical, you know, Jungian uh, you know, motion-focused stuff of you are only what you feel. Who really cares about what's real? Quit your job, sell your shoes, become a Buddhist. And, you know, we need both of them, but we really, we prefer one pretty strongly. And, you know, I, I think a lot of, you know, good therapy is about the integration of that, which I mean, I think, I mean, this is kind of going to the woods, but I think one of the only places where Jung is put better where by another writer, like he never is able to articulate what he's trying to say as well as another author puts him as Edinger, you know, and Edinger says, oh, ego and archetype. You know, the ego does not want to be in the same head as the subconscious mystical self. <laughs> You know, th these two parts of self are at odds. Um, you know, I think that's underneath a lot of the tensions of the opposites that Jung talks about. Um, well, I mean, and, and if we look at that as a spectrum, ego to the self, self mm -hmm. with a capital S, meaning, you know, the the the, the God, the, the personal God image, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's something that we're always, you know, that it, it's something that we're aiming towards. And yet, you know, it's not a destination. It's a process. And, and, and it's always hitting a moving target. So if you meet the therapist that says, oh, I've dealt with my shadow, I'm done. You don't know where that is in the room, man. I'll tell you where mine is. Like, it's not done. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? These are, these are. Oh, you got to be careful with the Freudians. They're, 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 they're <laughs> they think exactly. it's over. No, well, that's it. Because, you know, in, in any given moment, every one of those gods, every one of those archetypes, every, every complex, every shadow has yeah. a life of own, you know, and yeah. yes, we can come to um, maybe, you know, they lose their autonomy um, to a degree. What did, what, what did Hillman say? He said, you know, we learn to carry a complex differently when we know that there's a God at the root of it, you know, <laughs> I mean, and, and yeah. that's the point is like, because we, no, we're never over it. It's an ongoing project. You know, the yeah. healing process is an ongoing. If you feel like you have dealt with an inevitability of psyche then you, you don't understand how it works you know um <laughs> the inevitability of psyche yeah well i mean because because psyche's i mean that's soul <laughs> you know you don't never that's never done you know but what psyche and logos i mean it's giving language to the soul isn't it yeah. and so that's it and understanding which is never done because it's so far beneath language you know it's and by the time you've described it you've cheapened it you know, I think that's why a lot of the Jungians leave in the 70s and 80s. You know, all these people leave the institutes when they've become so analytical and they're basically Jungian literalists. And you start to get, you know, Arnie Mandel with process therapy and Sidran Halstone with voice dialogue and, you know, countless other people that left therapy to do workshops and, you know, these different things because they wanted direct experience. 
and the institutes had become pure analysis forever that never ended. Um, and, and so you, you saw that, um, and, and that's what Hillman, I think was trying to articulate. I mean, that kind of drives Hillman mad until he finds the red book, you know, at the end of his life, he's not a well guy, you know, <laughs> there's some clips. Um, and it, it scares me because, you know, like I, uh, yeah, I, I see a lot of male Jungians having gone insane by the end of their life, you know, and it, it's scary. You know, I want to I want to be careful. And I relate a lot of to what Hillman did, but I also see where he kind of loses the thread. Um, but I, I think that that was what he was trying to articulate with archetypal psychology that he could never quite say was that he wanted there to be this direct re-experiencing of these forces that he felt like no one else was paying attention to or even looking for anymore therapy and psychology in, in therapy and psychology and i think what what to me because to me Hillman, you know because he did go back to you know unlike jung who who really worked hard to because he was such a mystic he worked so hard to be the empiricist scientist right until he couldn't be <laughs> well yeah. and hillman didn't have to do that so much he went right yeah. into the romantics and i i love that about hillman to me hillman writes so much what he writes is 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 poetic is poetry yeah and he does become a cranky old man and 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 i love what he did in the hundred we've had a hundred years of uh psychoanalysis right. right and and so so to me um what he emphasized was that it has to be taken to the street which is what i think the podcast I mean, to me, that's what I aim for in my podcast, because mm -hmm. what good is it if we're just, you know, preaching to the choir? It does have to, you know, it's like we these concepts, you know, that that seek to re-enchant, reunite us with the ensouled world, with the anima mundi. This this is key. This is key as we move forward in this, you know, in this crucial Kairos moment, you know, wow. and, and go ahead. Oh, no, no, please. Sorry. Well, I mean, to me, that's it. I, I just feel like to me, I draw from, you know, from both, you know, the, the Jungian and the archetypal, from the Mesoamerican, you know, from mythology in general, from poetry, from art, from beauty, from music, from voice, all of these things, you know, to where that are are the language of the soul. It, yeah. it is. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a conscious, you know, um, search for for um, reenchantment. Um, well, and, and that, that, that's Oh, I'm so I'm so sorry. Go ahead. That's right. I mean, as a ritual artist, that's my work. It's to yeah. sort of a re-enchantment. And I'd like I, to hear a little bit about the ritual art. I mean, I, that's kind of the focus of our podcast. Is like we we're doing. We want to talk about cutting edge of brain-based medicine, and you know, how, how do you how do you treat trauma with very modern you know approaches, but then also the depth psychology. Very few people have a foot in either world. Generally, half of our clinic or our ideology will piss off you know the guests. <laughs> you know, they like this thing that I posted, not that thing. Um, because we're talking about brain spotting and QEG brain mapping over here, which I think are developing the neurology of the phenomenology that Jung described. And then the timeless, you know, depth psychology things, which is why the podcast, I mean, you're talking about ritual art and the, all, all these different things. That's why we have a psychology of music, a psychology mm -hmm. of screenwriting. You know, we talk to rock stars, we talk to country mm -hmm. musicians, we talk to architects, we talk to urban planners, because all of these are how do you find um, the most, you know, you're always you're never going to get there but how do you chase this vision of what is so deeply human in a way that is so ancient that we are disconnected from it you know mm. trying to find it and when you really find it it's it's more natural it's it's more healthy um well, well put i um and it, it it is uh to me when i when i think about 
my process as, as a ritual artist with the Jungian and the archetypal depth psychology allowed me was a framework to understand the work that I did because as a ritual artist, my work has always come from mythology and dreams, you know, and the imagination um, and giving them image. In, in ritual art itself, we know from um, the Romanian philosopher, Mircea Eleade, as well as Marie-Louise von Franz, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that whenever a space is consecrated, now by consecration, it means like whether you're using copal or, or palo santo or mm -hmm. stage or, you know, what has been used. You're making, taking and, it out of chaos and making it order, you know, as, as yeah, Eliade Mercer would say. And yeah, so you, so, so you, you create what he called, um, you know, what was actually called in, in, in ancient uh, cultures was a sacred zone of absolute reality. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, to me, that is just absolutely fascinating that this this space, by consecrating a zone, you've created the sacred zone of absolute reality that unites you with the, first of all, with mythic time of beginning, so that you're re, you know, you can create anything from this space. Mm -hmm. And then you've, you've, you've invoked the four directions in the center. So now you're in sacred geometry that, that aligns you again, right? With the, mm. the, the, the cosmic spheres and on, on the earth itself. And so from this space, that's where the, I mean, you could call ritual art active imagination. That's where every little piece, when you create your altar, you recognize as ensouled. Every yeah. you know, whether you're creating a, a mandala, and the mandala, you know, Jung always encourages his his patients to 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 make mandalas, because they they, they bring resolution to the conflict, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so whether you're making a mandala within a group, or you're you're creating ritual dance, you're enacting a myth, all of these things, the storytelling, everything is happening within a consecrated space. I mean, so that in and of itself becomes sort of like a a reenchantment, a metaphor, uh, you know, which is a reenactment of the deep psyche, just like the as, Aztecs are doing, you know, trying to reenact the forces that are under the world. And that was part of the the, the Aztecs. It was part of what they did. It was there was a process, world making, um, uh, world renewing. One of the and, and the world renewing, they they always reenacted the the creation myths. Um, and basically to give life to everything again, to renew everything again. And one of the things that Marie-Louise von Franz says in Creation Myths is that whenever creation myths are reenacted, recited, ritually recited, you know, they basically, like you said, they bring order to the chaos. And she, she cites a case of these Fiji shaman when they were, the Fiji people were experiencing a famine, um, and so the 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 shaman go to the rice fields and circle circling the rice fields in ritual they recite the rice creation myth how rice came into being as if and this is her words as if you know it's like the rice is listening and is able to grow again right they're reminding the world of how it works Exactly. And reminding ourselves of how the world works. Is the and the role, that's the role of myth. It, it comes to life, as Jung says, when we when we reenact it, when we recite it. And so that's something that I bring to ritual art. That's it's part of the, the storytelling is whether I'm whether it's with a dream that's being reacted, whether it's a myth, whether it's 
you know, we've consecrated the ground and we're we're entering this this space of uh, mythic time of the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, to bring resolution to the conflict, to, to reenact yeah. and, and, and reorder the psyche, right? So that we can find that um, outwardly, you know, in our personal life and, and, and likewise, this is extended to the to the community and, and when I think that's the, the danger of an ego driven um you know, accomplishment, eternal growth oriented culture is that everything becomes hierarchical, that you're leveling up and leveling up and getting more and more and more. And that isn't one sustainable, but two, it's not psychologically healthy. I mean, like those, like when, when religion is working, when a spiritual principle is working, there is a descent and then a return, you know, they're going back to the very beginning and saying, you know, the egg came out of the water and then we all came from the, you know, there's a reminding whatever the creation myth is, you know, the element is telling you, um, where you came from and reminding you, you know, of a lot of things that are very human and very healthy to remember that this is temporary, that it's not terribly important, that you're a part of a bigger thing and all these things that we forget when it just becomes about how, how big can I get the number? How big can I get the empire? You know, how the, how the corporate fantasy. Absolutely. And, and I, that, that whole point, I mean, that life death, it, it was something that the Mesoamericans embraced, you know, that, that, the, the the concept of a, of a life death cycle death mm -hmm. is basically strategically denied in the corporate industrial growth fantasy right mm -hmm. i mean so death is part of it you know life and death is go to it just goes together can you can you say anything about the history of the day of the dead in modern mexico because you know one of the the facts that a lot of people like to play with is that you know it didn't exist until the james bond movie and then they decided that was a good tourism thing and then they they made the day of the dead but that was sort of when it became, an, I guess, a national holiday and was promoted by the state. But a lot of those elements are incredibly timeless and they go all the way back, you know, way yeah. before Live and Let Die. You know, and, and I, I'll have to rewatch that movie because you're the second person that person that told me that. So when did that movie come out? Just curiously. Uh, I, if I had to, I mean, I, I saw that movie in seventh grade, but the film stock and the color. How old were you? I would you say like 64, it? probably. Let me Google it. Or maybe it was in the 80s even. Okay. Because. You know, so I moved to Mexico in 1990, and um, Googling it. So we will. All right, cool. I'm listening to you. And you can you can talk. I'm just letting okay. you know. There's noise. So yeah. when I moved to Mexico in 1990, um, I was living in Michoacan, like I said, which is my ancestry, and the Mexican Day of the Dead was inc an incredible um, and numinous experience there. Uh, the, I'll just give you a little brief background there. The, I lived in, in the Pátzcuaro area, which is, uh, uh, Lake Pátzcuaro is about 50 square miles. It's enormous. It's fishing villages and, and artisan villages around the lake. And mythologically, the lake was considered the door to the underworld. And so it was alive with, um, celestial beings, underworld beings. Uh, there was the, the rain god, uh, the blue lord, that was his residence. Um, and it was the portal, like I say, to the underworlds where people went. And so that this many years later, you know, that it, it was, uh, you know, it has become such a hub for the urban, you know, Mexican urbanites and, and, and internationals. It's not a big surprise, but it goes the day of the dead was an incredibly exuberant festival in mesoamerica um and it lasted for like a month and, and now it lasts about two weeks so to say that you know that uh 
James Bond gave it life. No, yeah. no, no. This yeah. was Mesoamerican, and it was one of the most celebrated and exuberant festivals in Mexico, well, in Mesoamerica ever. And it went morphing, because this is something I did study. It went morphing through the years. I mean, sometimes the, um, depending on who the monks were, they allowed it. They allowed it because they were receiving tithes from the people. They were receiving mm -hmm. candles that were being made. They got they got rich from the 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 fat and the food that was offered mm -hmm. because it was a big festival. It was a big festival for the dead, right? Because it, it coincided with the harvest. And they, um, I mean, so as a result, some of the monks were were all for it. Yeah, this is great, and they had their their altars inside their house as well as at their cemeteries, and they allowed it. And some of them were utterly opposed. So mm -hmm. it depended on where you were in Mexico, you know, at the time, you know, in ancient Mesoamerica, but that it goes back, you know, way mm -hmm. beyond James Bond. Absolutely. You know, um, and it looks like it, it was just the parade. So as I've heard that as kind of a fact that didn't sit well with me, that a lot of people have said that the movie invented day of the dead or something. And it looks like it was just the giant parade through Mexico City. That central one is the one. It's not the holiday because the, the oh, okay, okay. Well, and it I looks mean, recent. I, I was thinking it was uh, "Live and Let Die" or um, that that did it. I, I thought somebody else re re recently movie. mentioned that to me. I, and I'll have to watch that because oh, she said, "Oh, you have to watch it." But yeah, I mean that it has to me that it's a it's a cultural identity and has to me it's true that it's grown. It's grown exponentially and everywhere. But that to me is also, that has to do with the archetypal nature of, uh, to me, of death. It's in a way, it's a, when I talk about it, the fact that it's crossed centuries and now borders, it, it, it in a way, it compensates for the industrial growth uh, corporate fantasy that denies death. And it brings a face, it brings image to death that has heretofore been suppressed right it's been relegated to you know whispers in hospital rooms and and the stuff of whether it's finances or you know the logistics of the funeral or you know given over to uh the church to to deal with any esoteric you know or or, or grief and um but to me the fact that death comes you know and one of the things about the the La Catrina, for instance, one of the main images, La Catrina is the means the fashionable lady, and so it's the fashionable lady death, right? We see this her with her big fancy hat, you know, turn of the century swanky dresses and stuff, um, and it, it she it combines the Mesoamerican goddesses of death with the uh, Spanish. Um, medieval idea that death comes mockingly to us all. It doesn't matter how rich you are. You know, it, it made fun of the of the. Um, this was by designed by Guadalupe Jose Posada, um, uh, um, a lithographer and um, journalist who who used who created that image right in the 1920s uh, and and satirized politicians and you know everyday people and you know made made it you know as popular as it you know it is in modernity that face okay because that face it certainly didn't go back to mesoamerica that is modern but that's the 1920s yeah. and then diego rivera and frida Kahlo and you know mm -hmm. different muralists brought la catrina to life um claudio lomnitz who is a um mesoamerican scholar uh he talks about the fact that the death is he says that death is sort of like the the national 
totem of Mexico and a culture that was born, I mean, a, a nation that was born of, 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 of a conquest, right? Because Mexico didn't exist until the 1500s. It was Mesoamerica, right? It was these ancient mm -hmm. civilizations. And so that Mexico that was had a lot of bejeweled skulls, you know, it, the, it was further back than we have the history and the record of the mythology there doing a lot of things with skulls in this place so so yeah so it, it, it is and and because there was so much you know there was the revolution following and everything was sort of tenuous death was always in the face and it was it was a life death cycle and and, and which you know when when death is present whenever we have a close encounter with death we become more fully into life mm -hmm. uh, you know we're more conscious Otherwise, we, we tend to sort of float around and imagine that we have time to whine, you know. And without this, then nothing is important. You know, we, we feel immortality that is not, not real or is illusory. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever looked at the Santa Muerta cults? Like the, the, the kind of not in depth, but I, I do know about them, absolutely. I mean, it seems sort of relevant that the narcos and stuff would have resurrected that or, yeah. or brought it to life. I'm not sure which. I, I don't know enough about it, but yeah, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting phenomenon for sure. Yeah. Well, and, and even you know the Aztecs weren't perfect. I mean, you we definitely you know there's the uh, myth of uh, you know corporatism or infinite growth, and you know you're talking about, but you know the Aztec Empire was an empire. I mean, Aztec is even kind of a misnomer because it was the Mexica is the actual civilization, the Aztec the, the military. Yeah. Um, well, that's so interesting. Absolutely. And it's all the, the only thing we ever learn about really is the, the shadow, you know, that mm -hmm. was the brutal, you human know, human sacrifice. sacrifice. And, you know, the human sacrifice, one of the things, and I'm so upset that I lost this because there's a, a, there was a British woman that uh, uh, his history podcast had on. And I, I don't remember the podcast. I don't, I don't know how I came upon it. You know, Spotify just put her there and I was so mad because I was driving and I wanted to write it down. I should have pulled over because I don't have her name, but a British historian. And she talks about the fact that everything that she's researched doesn't says that that's just war. These were prisoners mm -hmm. of war, you know, so to call it human sacrifice, is that what we're calling what's going on? You know, what we committed, you know, the, our empire has committed all over the planet. Are we, we human? We should. Yeah, I mean, that's well, that's it. How is it different? I mean, because we're doing it from the air. How are we more because it's more technological somehow that's that's less savage. I mean, war is war is war is war. That's it's just brutality. It's not it's the opposite of civilized. I mean, yes, you, we can argue that point. We, Athena, you know, the, the, a warrior goddess, you know, springing from her father's head. I mean, she she was also a goddess of civilization, wasn't she? I mean, she she basically Rest everything. On. Created, yeah, of wisdom. Everything that she created was to, um, you know, was for a vessel for civilization. You know, whether it was the yoke or or, or, or the olive tree, the the um, weaving. Everything was a vessel for civilization to to thrive. And the only time, unlike her brother Mars, the only time she went to war was to defend the polis. You know, and then she was brutal. Okay, so there's that. You know, I mean, and she had the gorgon on her shield to 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 prove how incredibly brutal she was. So, you know, to me, so now I'm going to go back to to the to the um, to the Aztec. You know, the the empire and you know everything. Everything does have its shadow. You know the. The idea, I mean, and and they had, you know, they had, they had the Mexica, they had, you know, he had gotten way out of, you know, 
power, you know, corrupts, right? And with absolute power corrupts absolutely. It, it, I mean, it, it's what happens. So it was like, again, a revisioning is we, yeah. when we glean the, the gold, what, what are we leaving? You know, what, what can we leave behind? What do we learn from our history? And if we don't learn anything from our history, which seems like apparent, you know, in modernity, mm-hmm. you know, then we're destined to, you know, commit the same atrocities and errors over and over and over. So what, what do we learn? I mean, empires, let's, let's, let's think of another way of being, you know, um, they're not terribly sustainable constructs. I mean, the, the the flower wars, you know, they would have that were basically like football, except you died. Uh, yeah, I mean, you were doing it to protect a warrior class. You, you needed to have a war, but they had already conquered the area from they had already expanded geographically as far as they could go. So an empire needs war. So what do you do? You have these flower wars where you go in and, you know, in order to advance in the ranks, you have to ca- catch a certain amount of prisoners and. We need warriors, so we got to catch prisoners. And also, the empire's religion is based on sacrifice, so this gives us prisoners to, you know, sacrifice. But when, you know, a lot of the people that try and um, sugarcoat it a little bit more and say like, well, actually, you know, the people it was kind of an honor. The people liked getting sacrificed, like they were stoked for it. It was like, well, you know, all of the surrounding um, polices sided immediately with Cortez. <laughs> you know, they weren't they weren't a fan of the empire part of it. You know. That's it. You know, the, the thing is, when you think about the Mexica people and the role of Tlacaelel, who, who um, Miguel Leon Portilla in Aztec philosophy, Aztec thought and philosophy, which is, uh, I highly recommend. It's a beautiful book. He's a, you know, Mesoamerican scholar, obviously, and philologist. So he takes the, um, the Nahuatl word and, and uh, he, he'll break it apart and he does a close reading and it's just, it's so in-depth and it's so beautiful. But talking about Tlacael, he, when the Mexica people, you know, when they were when they were a, a warrior roaming uh, tribes and without a without a home and and looking for their home, they would they sold themselves off as mercenaries, right, mm-hmm. and and just sort of fought for whomever. And uh, when they began finally establishing themselves, uh, Tlacael he was like the head military guy and and their king king was saying oh my god i guess we're gonna have to pay taxes to this guy this is before they're an empire right but they finally established themselves you know he's gonna run you know run us dry but we're gonna have to do it and everything and like i said no no we're not gonna do it we're not gonna do it and what he did he began an entire campaign you know to basically in honor of the of of the war god of of huitzilopochtli and he that there you see the power of the archetype i mean the power of any religion he he basically with his campaign you know he said we have to feed the war god you know the blood that he needs to sustain us there's that mystical military world view that the aztec or, or the mexica people took on and it it basically made them the largest empire in that area you know there's the power again like i say of the religion the archetype because the war god was their main god. But at the same time, right alongside this, this mysto, mystical military worldview, were the Tlamitanime, the Aztec wise men, the astronomers, philosophers, the astrologers, the scientists, the, the mathematicians, you know, that were the ones that that created architects. the social political order. Absolutely, the architects. And, and the, the whole point being there was that 
here they were, they were poets, you know, that um, that spoke in metaphor, that that sought truth through through what they called flower and song, or or which meant mm-hmm. poetry, right? They spoke in 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 in, in these are called disfrasismos, which are which means um, you know, literally two word metaphors, but nouns. That means mm-hmm. a noun is a person, place, or thing. It's not an adjective and it's not a, a verb, right? So it's different. So and and flower and song meant poetry and so here these wise men were in love with you know what what would um, miguel leon portilla said that they were enamored of the stars and 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 poetry and and they were captives of beauty i mean it's what brought them to their knees and basically the last 12 when when they went above you know to the spanish uh you know court and basically said well if you say our gods are dead then you might as well just kill us because we can't go on with this you know and and i mean in essence it's what we have. It's 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 sort of like a a march. Uh, Miguel Lampartia compared that to to let's say uh, the German people, citizens at the time that Nazism was going on, right? And there were you know incredibly you know brilliant people right alongside Nazis. I mean, we have it in our culture, you know. Heidegger, Heidegger doesn't hang out, or he doesn't hold out very long against fascism. So there it is, nationalism anywhere. You know, it's like that doesn't mean that there's another part of a culture. You know, it, we like to say, oh, they were just brutal, you know, barbaric, uh, you know. Anyway, there is to that. My whole point is I go to Mesoamerica to glean the wisdom that I can, you know, to, to, to put the archetypal lens on, you know, and, and say, this is what we need, you know, now. How do we imagine this world into being now? You know, how can mm-hmm. we glean? ancient and you know blend it with the wisdom that we have learned in the modern and and um you familiar like um what is it there's uh, david tacy calls it the the post-secular sacred but there's a lot of um you can kind of see you can touch on it a little bit but they they the idea that you know there's kind of phases of human consciousness the first one is very mythic and, and magical thinking that we just look at the world and we project our psychology on it. And then we don't recognize the projection and we think it's real. And we say, okay, here's this God and the sun is about me and the the moon is about me and whatever. And then that age wanes and there's a scientific revolution of, we can just explain everything and distill it down to a test tube. Um, And then we've killed all of that. You know, none of that is real anymore. We can understand everything intellectually, but that sort of fails too. You know, and Jung alluded to this third phase that there's a place with that you go into that's, okay, we need science. Science is sort of helpful. You know, I don't want to, I want to cure my scrofula or whatever, but also um, it can't explain everything, you know, like part of, you know, and, and Jung spends a lot of time, you know, talking to Pauli about that at Bollingen that, you know, that there's this, that science is going to bump up against the inevitability of religion anyway. You're going to get to this place where, your intellectual ability to understand the world doesn't save you. And there you have to, you know, the, the answer is not, as some people accuse Helmut of saying, you know, going back to ancient religion and digging that up um, and throwing science aside, the, it, it is to recognize the limitation of science and to trust the intuition of a connection to place and a connection to these archetypal realities, even if we don't understand it intellectually, like even if we can't. And I think that's where we are right now is we're very bad at, doing things that we can't understand um, that we can explain. I, you know, I agree. And I think, I think that's where synchronicity comes in. I think that there needs to be a lot more um, studies done in synchronicity because synchronicity allows us 
you know, and, and, and Jung defines synchronicity as the, you know, meaningful coincidence, right? Mm -hmm. And that, that, that being evidence, let's say, that we have of a, um, ensouled, conscious, intelligent, communicative universe speaking with us that we're a part of, right? I mean, for us to sort of awaken to that reality um, and, and to become conscious participants in the ensouled worldview. And, and synchronicity, I think, is that sort of that third factor that can allow that and go, you know, I've lived too many synchronicities to go, you know, to, to describe, disregard them. Oh, it's just a coincidence. No, no. You know, it, 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 there are coincidences, but meaningful coincidences mm -hmm. that's different meaningful coincidences that just go whoa you know and, and there's always the story of the the golden scarab dream that uh jung you know shares with his his client and and who's been a skeptic and more you know um in line with the reductive science and is not sort of buying into jung's you know enchanted mm -hmm. worldview and um and when she tells the dream of the the golden scarab there not 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 tap 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 and you know insistent at the his at Jung's window and you know finally he opens the window you know grabs what is the equivalent of the golden scarab in his hands and says here's your golden scarab so that kind of synchronicity that occurs all the time and I think I think it really does um, act as this third place that we need more and more research being done on so that we can how do you lead. research that though you know how do you well I mean kind of intuition into a number because what you're talking about is looking Research. at things that we can't understand and, and letting them still make meaning yeah you know? i mean i think that if science wants it i think if science wants to to do it they can collect data on that what what's the synchronicity collecting data how many people you know on a certain number of people through their life you know what i mean i don't find to me i don't I'm 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 far too Jungian to to need that kind, but I do think that that synchronicity is it can provide that for for the science and the the more depth psychological to find, you know, a, a union. I do think that that's where that, that maybe the connection though is is more in our intuition. You know that like you're saying, you know that you know COVID is happening over here, and then Australia is on fire over there. You know, like you know somebody who comes from a very logical existential place it's going to be like what is the connection how can you possibly say that we burned australia down and that made a virus in china that spread here but when you when you sit with it as more of like a human intuitive thing that doesn't need a logical or rational connection it's like further we move on this project the worse it feels i don't like seeing videos of the dead things on fire as we do this to the planet i don't like um living in a world where you know community has been so rendered that we can't um you know even come together to make a plan for or, you know that you you can feel that these things are moving in a direction that isn't good and kind of go back to the drawing board and say how do we do this better mm. instead of how do we keep managing something that doesn't work you know and i i personally i don't know that science ever gets you there i mean i think that that is more of a felt connection to things um, mm. than one that you can you know turn into a, a, a number in the a space. number a number well, I, I would agree, you know, 100%. But if science wants it, that, that those are the areas that I say, go there. Look mm -hmm. for find the, find the research there. You know, if you want those numbers, go there, you know, because it is, you know, it only has been sort of reductive. To, to imagine that we're disconnected, to imagine that, you know, if over 25 million animals die in, a, in, in the brush fire of Australia, is not going to have some kind of effect on us. You know, it's like that study that they did on the wolves and I think it was Yellowstone, 
right? When they got rid of the wolves, how their ecosystem just went to hell in a basket. And by reintroducing them, everything came back to life. I mean, come on. It's, you know, we, we have to learn from nature, biomimicry. You There's know? a study that they've been trying to like disprove for a really long time. They keep controlling for it. But they're like, I think it was in the nineties. There's a study that said, basically, if there's trees around crime will go down. And so everybody kept being like, Oh, we have to come up with the intellectual reasons. They've done like five different other studies where they tried to control for things like where they're like, well, maybe there's trees in wealthier neighborhoods and there's less crime around wealthier neighborhoods. And then you go back and look at it and it turns out there's no correlation there when you control for income. But it's still, and then they said, well, maybe the trees drop leaves. And then when you drop the leaves, people can't walk on them to sneak up to the house because they crunch and then they do control for that variable. And it turns out that when you do it in another season or you do it with evergreens, the trees just make people <laughs> commit less crime and you know but there's this scientific you know uh, existential impulse to say yeah but why we have to understand why it is why? you know and there's so not important. this ability to just say maybe there's a connection to nature is slightly healthier and if you don't cut down all of the trees things work better even if you never figure out exactly why that is and you know when you think about it to me that, that we go back to the idea of, of creating the city you know, how is it that everybody can have trees and clean water and, and, and have access to, 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 to swimming in rivers or going to the ocean? You know, I live in L.A. and, and there are children, you know, in, 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 in South Central that have never seen the beach at Santa Monica. You know, that's the point is like, you know, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Caroline Casey um, from the Visionary Activist Show. I'm not. Oh, you, you want to tune into her. She's an astrologer. Oh, my God. Yeah, she's an um, astrologer, activist, and, and just a hoot deep and, and, and the mythic news. I mean, you do want to tune into her. She's her, You can hear her show. I mean, you, you just tune in, but she's on KPFK, no, KPFA from the Bay Area. And, um, oh, God, now how did I get there? I don't know. Um, I, I lost kids my not being able to see the ocean that oh. the city and they're so close to it. I think. I mean, so, so I mean, the, the whole point being is that, oh yeah, it's just, you know, why is there more addiction and uh, among the poor? You know, it's like, well, make reality better. That's what she says. Make reality yeah. better. You know, it's like because it's not. It's not. How is it possible that kids from South Central have never seen Sa Santa Monica, and why? You know, and and there used to be. Um, uh, um, the electric the cable cars that went there that there was a whole trolley that went back and forth you know on all the beaches that you know that everybody could get to you know we lost that i mean and then to corporate greed honestly there's no other way to put it you know we we you know there was a system and that's another thing when i think about reimagining uh, you know there are high-speed railways all over the world except in the u.s except in the US, you know, we had these yeah. antiquated and I and I think about the effects on this antiquated railway system that we have and it why and people don't travel. And if they do travel, it's expensive and they're alone. You know, you're in the car exactly. Alone. And it helps to keep the people separate. Mm -hmm. You know, if we want to hop on a train and go see you know, the, the country, you know, states in the Midwest, or if we want to go to the South, if we want to visit, you know, if we can hop on a high-speed railway, we're going to do it. It'll be less expensive than a plane, ideally, you know, than a plane. Less, you know, if we can get them to be, you know, uh, green, a green high-speed railway, then, you know, there'll be less environmental damage. 
and we can find that we actually have more in common with the people that we've been told, you know, vote red or vote, you know, blue. It, it, maybe we're more purple or, you know, it's like we have to to look. And I, I think we I have to I, to me, that is something that I don't understand is what is it? You know, I, I heard some, you know, famous radio podcast guy that I stopped listening to saying, you know, America's the greatest nation on earth. And I thought in terms of what? You know, in terms of what? I mean, I mean, in terms of propaganda. In terms of me, I mean, viewing your children as an extension of your own ego is not good. Viewing your country as an extension of your own ego is not good. No, and no. Really, viewing your anything as an extension of yourself is not great. You know. So, um, yeah, so to you, me, I, I find it. I thought it really upsetting, but I think when are we going to get our green high-speed railways? Why? Why don't we have them? You know. Or you know, you've got. Um, polyvinyl chloride um, train car derailing and turning the sky black and Flint, Michigan oh without God. water. And, and what, what we're, we're bombing a country because we said that they were doing chemical warfare. And it's like, Hey, um, this looks uh, pretty nefarious and, and pretty chemical right there. There you go. And, and yet no, and who's please. being held accountable for that? And how, how, what is going to happen to those people in the water and the people and the beings that live in the water and the water that those people drink? nobody's accountable in the corporate industrial growth fantasy nobody's nobody's accountable it's like oh no 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 you know we just put the blinder on because it's, it's all about profit for you know, a certain elite you know it's well, not all a, of the all of the giant projects that you can talk about are about an external reality it's you know building a wall or bombing a thing or you need to bomb this one or not that one or this one's good but that one's bad but you can't repair the drinking water in a town that hasn't had drinking water for 10 years which would be an infinitely cheaper project to do. There you go. In a month. In a month. We in can't a... talk about anything that's domestic. We can't build a school. We can't build um, a train. We can't. We can't even talk about it. You know, you've got an infrastructure that's falling apart. And you got the slowest inf- internet in the world. And every, I don't watch the news, but whenever I'm out and it's on, they're talking about something outside of my country, which I don't really want to participate in. I'd like to fix this one. There you go. So, I mean, so to me, that kind of a, a vision, I think it's time. It's like, you know, podcasts like yours that are, you know, looking to, to find what, it, you know, how, how, what does a, a, you know, a new world look like? You know, one that we, from images that we cherish in our hearts, how do we, you know. Well, you won't be attacked more than if you just say, <clears throat> could we just imagine a little bit better of a world? You know, you know, like that's not even an argument. It's not even a, you know, it's like people are immediately like, that's not reasonable. That's not, that's not moderate. What do you, who do you think you are? And I'm like, man, like, you know, it's either that, it's that you're stupid and naive and unreasonable. If you just say, there like, things could be slightly better and this doesn't work great, that will get people more mad at you. Or there's splitting. It's like, well, you must be a Democratic pedophile or you must be a Republican fascist. And you're like, I just said, can we maybe have a, you know, I wrote that article about architecture saying, you know, that I liked that Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, tried to meditate on the land and then the use of the space that the people are going to have. And then a higher spiritual principle for that thing and kind of rested those together. And that's why his buildings functions sort of like altars, which doesn't always work. I mean, he's, but that was his process. I like his process there. And my, my point was like, not Frank Lloyd Wright built buildings like altars that it's like architecture is an altar, but right now it's an altar to very dark gods. You know, it's billboards and Hobby Lobby wraps with cheap sentiment. And, you know, I got all this pushback on there. I was like, you know, I I went into a school where there were things like windows. Um, And now we don't do that, but we have a TV every two feet on the wall to show something when you could just have a window. You know, just there was, you know, a garden at the school that I went to, you know, 
And we got all these emails where people are like, well, in the 60s and 70s, they built schools this way and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, look, if we ever chose to send kids into a place that looked like a federal prison that was made out of cinder blocks and painted with final paint and had a, you know, a giant fence around it with razor wire, if we ever thought that was an okay thing to do, then we need to apologize for that until we have taken every single one of those things apart and built a school. Okay? Like, I don't care that in 1970, they thought it was distracting to see sunshine or whatever. You know, I can't, I can't speak to that psychosis. What I can say is that that's a problem. And why are you sending me an email being like, yeah, but I mean, you know, people did that a lot and it'd be expensive. Yeah. All I'm saying is like, this is, this is insane. You're telling me to take my child to a thing that looks like where we send felons when they're in kindergarten. I and remember someone is being, defending that to me. Why? Yeah, yeah no, I, I was so struck by that, your statement, because there is a, a school, there's a charter school about um, two miles from where I live that looks just like that, that, that prison. I think, good God, you know, really? This is where they're sending kids to school. This is it. And, and, and this is like in a, there, there's no evidence that if any green grass around it, you know, there's no evidence. And the windows it, it are completely black. I don't know what's on the inside and what they can see from the outside, but it's, I mean, it's absolutely uh, soul killer, you know, and that's where they're sending kids to school. And it, it breaks my heart. It's like, really? This is where they're sending kids to school. This is, a, you know, an educational facility. It's a, it's a lack of vision. You know, we let's, talked to, to Leon Creer, who was one of the founders of uh, New Urbanism, and he would send me videos of when his town was like really tiny and they're like, you know, black and white and somebody's feeding a horse a sugar cube and it's horse and buggy. It's like, you know, he's he's very old and he's, you know, he's, he's kind of out there. But, you know, he was talking about he was just building these classical buildings and then they got into this modernist period and people started saying, well, you can't, he got out of architecture or he just quit doing it because he couldn't do it. The lady, he, I think he was talking about building a school in Britain and the lady came and said, look, I don't think you understand how schools work. There's windows here. And also there's a veranda outside where the students can go out in the open air. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> and she said, if you do that, then there will be sexual perverts that walk by and look at the children. And, you know, this idea that you, when you see that modernism and Reagan and Thatcher are coming in and there's all this paranoia and, you know, that we're projecting all this stuff. And he's like, like he didn't even know what to say, you know, and I, I when I, I was talking to him, he told me about um, he, he met Hillman, which uh, he, oh, wow. he was like, oh, you you sound like this guy that I met a long time ago. Hillman. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> but he said that uh, uh, Hillman told him when you go to European architecture, the lines go up. And so you're you're always called to look up at the heavens when you go to American architecture we put a drop ceiling with fluorescent lights so that when you go into work, you have to stare down into hell. <laughs> I thought was really funny. No, fair enough. He, I mean, he, Hillman talked about the anemic buildings, you know, I mean, he really, to me, his thing on, on architecture was just right to the point, you mm -hmm. know, because it, it makes such a difference. I mean, prisons, just the whole notion of prisons to begin with, but in prisons, the, the ceiling is so low. What that does is that's oppressive. You know, that's so incredibly oppressive to the soul. I mean, when we walk into a church, the first thing that we notice is the ceilings, isn't it? You know, especially if you're in a city. The first thing when you walk into any, you know, fabulous old cathedral, it's like, what does it do? It opens us right up 
you know, the soul just sort of opens, the spirit mm -hmm. opens. It's like there's, there's, a, it, it creates a refuge, doesn't it? As opposed to these, you know, drop ceilings with the fluorescent lights that just, yeah, they make us look right into the, right into hell. I mean, they are, they're an underworld experience. And, and that's what, you know, how, you know, it seems like prisons are designed just to, I mean, I, just the whole notion of, of, of prisons to me is like that all has to be reimagined. But so much, I, I think, you know, goes back to that idea of, you know, of, of Carolyn Casey's make reality better. You know, and, I mean, and, and that that might be simple, naive, whatever, but it's not. Well, why, why does that do statement it? make people as angry as it does? And it does. Yeah. You know, it it, it, be, it because it sounds simple and naive, when in fact it means we actually have to use our minds, our imaginations, our hearts, our intuition. You know, to figure it out. Let's take the time instead of bombing people everywhere and oppressing, you know, people in our you know, for a profit, let's, let's, let's reconsider. Let's, let's reimagine. Let's, let's think about what a new world looks like. What, how, how does a, you know, if, if we, we consider that this incredibly beautiful planet that we we're born on, you know, and, and we really systematically tried, you know, have ravaged and, you know, burned to hell and cut down and done hideous things too. But if we can reimagine this paradise, how how do we you know create something where we can live with one another you know and, and hold attention of opposites maybe we don't always agree with what someone's saying but we don't have to take up arms you know we don't need to be carrying ak-47s you know and to you know <laughs> for well, but to do that we have to admit that we don't know and we have to just sit for a minute in the fact that we agree on that that's where we want to be we don't agree on how to get there there you go and that's a vulnerability that we don't have. We're not, we don't, we're not allowed. It's not a, you know, it's not a, a, a way, you know, to, to be, you know, to, to take that pause and go, oh, okay, we don't know. It comes down, do you want to be perfect or do you want to be whole? Mm, yeah. We're well, not very good at admitting that we're not perfect. There you go. Yeah. Great. Let's drop that one. Let's drop the whole perfect notion. Let, let's start with that one. <laughs> I think that's a good way to begin. Yeah. Well, that probably is a good place to end too, unless yeah, there's anything else that you feel like yeah. you'd like to get to or uh, didn't. And then, you know, we can have a conversation on another topic again, you know, yes, please. I'd love to have you on my podcast. This was, this has been lovely and you can tell us more about what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Th that would, that would uh, make room. The conversation would probably make room more to talk about taproot and some of the, some of the stuff. Wonderful. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like yeah, to do that. a lot of places like it yet. Um, yeah, I know. I know more about it. So I'm definitely, you know, scheduling you so that you can tell me about the taproot and what you're doing. Well, so uh, if you want to check out the Blue Medicine Journal, um, that would be the podcast to look up. I know that you can find it on Podbean, but you know, Google will probably get you there. I think you're in Podbean and Google uh, Podcast right now. Right. Apple's the big one you want to get. <laughs> That's the one that I'm tr I've been trying to connect with and will successfully at some point. All right. Well, uh, check out the Blue Medicine Journal and then hopefully I'll be on there and uh, maybe we will hear from Sandra again. So I'm. Fair deal with an American seal and corporate handshake.